BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Hey, everybody, from KQED Public Radio, it's Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Guy Marzarati. In this week for Marisa Lagos. And on today's show, mayors in California's biggest cities are feeling political pressure to reduce homelessness. This week, we sat down with some San Jose voters to hear how they view the problem and possible solutions. Also, Donald Trump's legal problems are piling up, but that didn't stop the Republican Party in California from changing its delegate allocation rules for the March presidential primary in a way that will likely benefit who else? The former president. And that's where we're going to begin today, that meeting of the Republican Party in Irvine this past weekend. It was covered by LA Times reporter Seema Mehta, who joins us now. Hey, Seema. Hey, thanks for having me on. So before we get to that delegate issue, let's talk about what happened today in Washington. Of course, uh, the former president pleading not guilty to these charges that he conspired to stay in office, uh, even though he knew the election uh, had been lost to Joe Biden. Um, you know, what? what is your sense of, uh, you know, what are you hearing from Republicans or others in California? Uh, anything that might surprise us or is it sort of like well, I mean, the I, talking I think points? What we've seen, um, you know, all along, which is for his fans, for his base, they don't, they believe this is all a witch hunt. They don't, mm. they believe that he was, many of them still believe he, he actually won the election, which we all know he did not. Um, and, you know, this is also the third set of charges that he's been indicted on. And that hasn't put any sort of, you know, debt in his popularity. So it'll be interesting to see how it unfolds. And, you know, there's also still one more case out there um, in Georgia. But if it, if it, if it's what we've seen to date, it probably won't have much of an impact on, on his popularity among, you know, many Republican voters. And that's been true here in California, too. I mean, he's had a wide lead over DeSantis in, in state polling as well. Scott, you talked to someone this week, though, with a different who was happy to speak out about the indictments, former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Yeah, the Speaker Emerita was uh, in San Francisco. This was a celebration of the 150th year of the cable car. Uh, and afterwards, she had a little scrum with reporters. And of course, uh, people did ask her about these uh, latest uh, charges against Trump. And, you know, she didn't, surprisingly, didn't want to get into the politics too much, but she, you know, she was really proud, I think, of the committee, the January 6th committee that she created uh, when she was still speaker that investigated. They didn't have, of course, the indictment power, uh, but they pretty much you know, created a roadmap that the Department of Justice and the special prosecutor, uh, you know, Jack Smith used to uh, hand down this indictment this week. And so that was really her focus. I mean, she did say uh, she couldn't help herself that, you know, the Republican Party has sort of dragged itself into the mud on this. And, you know, like uh, Seema just said, I don't think she sees any change in that sentiment, at least not in the short term. And speaking of the party, Seema, you were down in Irvine uh, last weekend for a meeting of state party officials, and really the focus seemed to be about the the upcoming presidential primary here in California. It's moving up 
uh, for a presidential year to march. What were some of the changes that the delegates, that the leaders of the state Republican Party um, were debating? Sure. Um, well, because our primary is taking place earlier than it, uh, it often does, and it's taking place March 5th, we have to, the, the, the state Republican Party's rules in terms of delicate, delicate allocation have to align with um, RNC rules for early states. And one of those, this is the little weeds, but um, one of those, uh, one of those requirements is um, having some proportionality in how you, um, how you allocate your delegates. California has 169 delegates to the um, Republican nominating convention, the most of any state in the, in the nation. So even though the California Republican Party has not had very many successes statewide in California and their numbers have obviously dwindled in terms of registered voters, they do have a, you know, some clout when it comes to nominating, you know, the, the presidential nominee. So they had to change the way they dele- uh, they out they sort of give out their de- uh, the state's delegates. In the past, you know, we have currently 52 congressional districts. We said 53. Um, in the past, most of the delegates were allocated by congressional districts. So if you eat for each district you won, you'd get three delegates, which that was, there was a rule change put in place about 20 years ago, which was meant to make the state more competitive because, as you know, California is so big. It's so expensive to campaign here. We have some of the most expensive media markets in the world. So this delegate by a district by district strategy was meant so that, you know, if, if, a, if a campaign doesn't have you know, the money necessary to advertise statewide here, that they could you know, sort of strategically select the districts that they think they have the best shot in. It could be the ones that most match their, you know, sort of their background, their, you know, their, their policy positions. Or one of the fun things was if you look at a district in like San Francisco, like Nancy Pelosi's district or a district in L.A., these districts have very few Republicans, but you'd get the same three delegates from that as you would from like Kevin McCarthy's district. So that would have been interesting, but because there was not proportionality to it, there was winner take all by district, they had to change the rules. They debated a couple of different ways to do it. And in the end, they went with, uh, if a candidate receives more than 50% of the vote, they, he or she will receive all 169 delegates. If no one hits the 50% mark, then the delegates will be allocated proportionally based on the statewide vote. But by making it a statewide vote, it, it just makes it so expensive to compete here. Um, and it's, it's a lot of people fear that you know, a lot of the candidates just they won't even bother because, you know, we're, we're on Super Tuesday with more than a dozen other states. And, you know, to have the resources to invest here, it's it's really expensive. Yeah, it is. And of course, the most likely person to benefit, as we said, is Donald Trump. There was right. a Berkeley IGS poll in May that showed Trump leading DeSantis, who was in second place, 44 to 26 percent. Uh, that might change a little bit one way or the other. Uh, but, you know, assuming Donald Trump doesn't hit 50, let's suppose, you know, lightning strikes and all these charges begin to pile up or somebody gets traction and takes votes away. What what happens then if there, if nobody hits 50 percent right. plus one? Well, I mean, so the, the, actually uh, the former president's campaign, they pushed for this because they believe based on polling that he can't hit the 50. But if he doesn't hit 50 percent plus one, then the delegates will be allocated proportionally. So say somebody gets 40 percent of the vote, somebody gets 20 percent of the vote, then you get 40 percent of the delegates or 20 percent of the delegates. Um, so that'll I mean, with the way the polling, uh, what, what the polling shows right now, I mean, you would still collect a substantial number of delegates. But, you know, obviously their goal is to to get to cross that 50 percent mark because, you know, banking 169 delegates, you know, in early March is like uh, it's, it goes a long way towards securing the, nom- the nomination. And so is that really what's behind the, the national party pushing this? They don't want winner take all so early in the calendar where you could just amass a lot of delegates and potentially right. not draw out the primary contest. Right. I mean, the, it's supposed to make the early states. It's supposed to allow the, the sort of the debate about the nomination to continue for a little bit, to so not have it sewn up, you know, within a couple of weeks or a couple of months. And the other interesting thing is, you know, although our primary is March 5th, as you know, we all get our vote by mail ballots and those go out like in early February. So Californians will be voting not that long after people in Iowa and New Hampshire. 
you, uh, as you reported, uh, there was quite a bit of division within the party, or at least some, and it got pretty vocal. Um, describe what the divide was there. Was it between DeSantis and Trump people or some other faction? It was really, it was really uh, confusing, honestly, because originally the state party was considering modifying their rules in another way. And I won't get too into the weeds because it's really it's really in the weeds. But the the way that they were initially doing it, backers of President Trump believed that it would harm him and would help Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. The party ended up changing it because there was concern about how how the delegates were allocated to this way that we just we just discussed, which, as I said, was backed by President Trump's campaign. But the Trump supporters who are and the protesters there, they weren't happy for a number of reasons. First, there was confusion about how. Exactly. What exactly was being voted? How it was going to impact the, the primary and the delegates? Number two, it was being voted on by the executive committee, which is made up of a hundred leaders of the state party, and they wanted to see it uh, voted on at the convention, where you know more than fourteen hundred delegates would have voted for it, on, you know would, would have, have a, a voice on it on the floor, um, and the convention taking place in late September, early October. And then they also wanted to see a floor, so that if you say if you have a candidate who gets you know four percent of you know the vote, that they, they, that that wouldn't qualify for delegates. They didn't have an exact number, but they did want to see a floor. Like you have to have a minimum of X amount of support to get delegates. Um, and the state party said that they couldn't, that they had to act now because the RNC deadline is um, 8.59 p.m. on October 1st and the state Republican Party is meeting that weekend. So the the vote, the start of a vote, of a vote would take place like less than 12 hours before this deadline. And if they don't hit that deadline, they stand to lose half their delegates to the Republican National Convention, which is, that would be an enormous embarrassment. Seema, you've been to a lot of party junkets like this, the Medal of Valor is in the mail, we promise. But have you something like this? Have you seen it happen before where, as you described it, it sounded like there was even, you know, violence or, or shoving or yeah, that breaking I'm, out in the in the meeting? Yeah, I mean, there there are passionate people in both parties and sometimes they're they get a little carried away. Um, and in this case, like, you know, the protesters tried to enter the meeting room, which is the Marriott Nervine. Uh, security guards stopped them. Police were called, you know, tried to cool tensions. And then... Um, Later on, the, so the two groups are out there. There's sort of two factions who are, you know, chanting Trump and America first and all that. Um, and then one of them starts calling the other ones white nationalist. And then the people who are being called white nationalists call the other group open border supporters. And then they, they got in each other's faces, like they're, you know, pointing, like wagging their fingers in each other's faces. And then they started kind of jostling. And it was it looked like it was getting, you know, it, it was going to get worse until some other protesters sort of stepped in between the two groups. So it was it was a very chaotic day. You know, there there is, I don't know, conventional wisdom, I guess, that, you know, while Trump is the prohibitive favorite to win the nomination, he's going to have a really hard time winning nationally, although there was a New York Times poll this week showing him and Biden tied at 43. But I wonder if, you know, in quieter moments over a glass of, you know, whatever it is they drink, uh, do some of the party members, are they concerned that they're really getting, they're putting their chips on a guy that can't win in November? Yes, there there definitely are people that are concerned about this. And there's, you know, as much as, you know, President Trump definitely has a large number of supporters here, there's also a, you know, fairly vocal anti-Trump, anybody but Trump contingent. And a lot of them are really placing their bets on on Ron DeSantis, but his campaign has really sputtered since he announced in May. I mean, I think a lot of the people who want a Trump alternative really had high hopes for him because of his leadership in Florida, because of his handling of the pandemic. And it's since May, I mean, whether it's money problems, you know, having to lay off a ton of your staff, um, making... Some unfortunate missteps, like saying people, you know, the people enslaved people learned skills that, you know, benefited them, or supporting a curriculum that says that. Um, most recently, 
it's, you know, his numbers in the polls have not, they're not great against, you know, President Trump is handily beating him in almost every poll, um, and actually every recent poll. So I think that there is frustration, but there is not, they don't, they haven't settled on who the alternative is, who they think could prevail in the, and get the nomination and then could be successful against um, Joe Biden. That said, you know, President Trump won in 2016, a lot of people thought he wouldn't win. So, you know, we never say no. We, we have no idea what's going to happen between now and next November. Yeah, we're out of the predictions business. Did yes. this delegate process uh, in California say anything to you about maybe where party leaders are and whether they might be leaning more towards the former president or Ron DeSantis? Well, I mean, the the state party is effectively controlled by House Speaker you know, Kevin McCarthy, even though not officially, but, you know, behind the scenes. Um, and he, you know, has had, I mean, and I know he certainly had his ups and downs with the president, but he, they've largely been allied, you know, for quite some time now. Um, and McCarthy has used that to his advantage. For example, like David Valdea was one of the few Republicans who opposed Trump and th- that Trump didn't go after um, in terms of his reelection. And I, most people believe that is because, you know, purely because Kevin McCarthy was like, you know, let's leave him alone. I need this district. So um, I, I think, you know, there was a number of people, you know, in 2016 who were not huge supporters of Trump who now say they are, but it's, um, it's, 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 you know, I mean, there's certain things they have to say. Otherwise, they're, you know, they're going to stand to, like, lose standing or they stand to, you know, I mean, they, they all want to be delegates at the convention and they want to stay in the graces of whoever the nominee is and, you know, whoever the potential next president is. So, um, you know, officially, they're, you know, not picking sides. But I think a lot of people do, people do believe that, you know, that they support Trump and that they, you know, and that this rule change certainly benefits him. Yeah. And, you know, it wasn't that long ago. Maybe it was a while ago now. But, you know, the party did used to have a healthy, moderate contingent. You know, when Duff Sundheim, for example, was uh, the chair of the party, he's still a Republican, I think. Uh, But there are, you know, there really doesn't seem to be any semblance of that voice in the party. They've just sort of like been drummed out or just gotten frustrated. I mean, you know, they some of them joined the Lincoln Project, but, you know, that you know, that's not really what they probably prefer to be doing. They'd rather be part of a party. Right. It's, and it's, it, it has changed. The party's changed, but also the state's changed. And this also reflects national politics, which is Republican politics nationally have been you know, overtaken by Trump. So that's why you see some some policies they support now that they probably wouldn't have supported 10 years ago. And if you remember, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, last Republican governor, if he showed up at one of these events, he would be like loudly booed. And, you know, I mean, it would not be pretty enough that he would show up at one of these events, but um it's actually the last time he, he spoke at one of these events. He gave a sort of famous speech about how you're, he told them that they were dying at the box office <laughs> because of, because of their their beliefs. So there there are definitely fewer moderates um, in the party, both at the state level and also nationally. I think all three of us were there in 2016 in Burlingame uh, at the state party meeting. The last time the former president, at that time Trump, running for office, uh, came and spoke before California Republicans. I don't know if you remember this, Seema, he had to go under the freeway, the fence off of 101 in order to enter uh, the hotel from the back. But news came out shortly after these party rule changes that Trump is coming back to California. Right. So the, as I said earlier, the, convention, the state Republican Party convention in the fall is uh, the end of September, early October. And he's going to speak at the Friday luncheon. And those protests outside of Burlingame in uh, 2016 were nuts. Um, so, yeah, I was actually looking as I was writing one of my stories this week, I was looking for that picture, that image of him sort of crawling or, you know, clambering over like this concrete divider <laughs> and then you know, and having to come in the hotel the back way. And I mean, I would be really surprised if we don't. And there's pro- there was a ton of protesters outside of that. And, you know, it got kind of physical and testy at times, you know, uh, I remember getting caught between a police line and a line of protesters and that was not fun. Um, so I do wonder 
what the situation is going to look like in Anaheim. Um, yeah, of course. Of course, OC is a little different than San Francisco in terms of who's uh, who's going to get animated about something like that. But how, what does it mean to the state party to have Trump there? And DeSantis is going to go as well. What, what do they I'm, reap? I'm sure there are going to be other presidential candidates. And yeah. it's a huge sort of feather in their cap. I mean, it'll excite their members. And as we said, they haven't necessarily had much to be excited about in recent years in terms of their electoral success. Um, so it'll excite their members. It'll excite donors. And It'll draw a ton of news. So, I mean, this will probably be one of the larger parties in recent in recent history because just because of that. And I mean, if you remember back in the day, you know, they used to routinely get presidential candidates, uh, Rick Perry, Chris Christie, um, all kinds of people. And recently they haven't gotten, gotten as many. And so this will be, I think this will be a very exciting convention. All that sounds really great for the state party leaders. Maybe not so great, though, for the California Republican House members in Orange right. County who have really tried to avoid right. anything having to do with Trump for the last few years. This convention in Anaheim, it's happening two blocks from Michelle Steele's district. What What's the outlook for, for those kind of members with such a well, big circus coming to town? Michelle Steele is in a little bit of a different spot because her husband is Sean Steele and he's um, the Republican, the California's Republican National Committeeman. So... You know, they, you know, when Trump has arrived in California, they've greeted him on the tarmac. So that's a little bit of a different case. But for some of these other people, like Scott Baugh, who's running for that open Katie Porter seat, um, and that's a very, very tight district, I, I, I'd be shocked if you saw him anywhere in the county, in Southern California, anywhere near this thing. Yeah. All right. Seema Mehta from the LA Times. Thanks so much. Thanks, Seema. Thank you. All right. We're going to take a short break now. And when we come back, we listened in on a conversation of voters in one of California's largest cities about the politics of homelessness. And what we heard might surprise you. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Guy Marzarati, and we're going to shift gears right now. And, you know, there's uh, mayors in San Diego, San Francisco, and San Jose are going to be facing re-election next year. You know, we're never that far from another election. (laughs) And uh, top of mind for a lot of voters is homelessness and encampments. Yeah, and earlier this week, we got to be flies on the wall as a group of voters in San Jose participated in a focus group conversation about homelessness and the cost of housing. And Scott, this is, like you mentioned, such a big issue for mayors facing re-election in 2024. It routinely comes up on polls as you know a top issue for 
voters all over California. So we wanted to hear from a few of those voters uh, in San Jose as we've seen a lot of the conversation around the response to homelessness shift from a conversation about money, about funding, to now you're seeing a lot of, you know, switching more towards kind of a law enforcement response, these encampment bans that are popping up in a lot of major cities in San Diego, one went into effect on Monday. Just today, San Jose's mayor introduced a proposal to ban encampments uh, around schools. So it's definitely, you know, the the conversation is shifting in in the political sense as we get closer to when a lot of these mayors are going to have to go back before voters and presumably show some results. Yeah. And of course, Governor Newsom has also been very vocal about this. Uh, he's done press conferences in San Francisco, wanted to clean up the uh, all the encampments under like uh, freeway on ramps and off ramps. And so, as you said, we wanted to get these voters together and we uh, reached out to a uh, organization that does a lot of this on issues, uh, David Binder Research, and we found uh, a handful of folks. And, and we, Tell us why focus groups are better than, or not better than, but different from polls. I mean, polls are very useful. Yeah. Um, it, but, yeah. it was something we wanted to try out as kind of another reporting uh, you know, tool in our toolkit, uh, so to speak. I think polling, you get a, a sense from voters about maybe what issues are on their minds, what issues they're hearing about, and you do routinely see homelessness as a top issue. But to hear actually voters talk through what kind of solutions they'd like to see, how, you know, when they say it's a problem, how it's actually, you know, affecting their life or, you know, how they're thinking about it in a policy sense was uh, interesting. And in a focus group, you are getting, you know, a bunch of people get together kind of sounding off of each other. It's not, you know, we often do the man on the street, woman on the street, Vox, you go up, ask someone a question. They're not prepared for it. They're, you know, they maybe get, they give you 30 seconds. This was, you know, hour and a half of really just talking about housing affordability and homelessness uh, in San Jose. And it started really with a discussion about, you know, folks entering homelessness, people who are experiencing homelessness in the community. You know, how does that process come about? And I was a little bit surprised off the bat that we didn't hear a lot of the myths that you often hear about homelessness. These, you know, oh, it's warm in California. Oh, you know, the services that are offered are a magnet. You didn't hear a lot of that. And I think uh, this you know, excerpt kind of speaks to that. I think housing is a problem. It's, it's expensive. And to maintain an apartment or, I mean, not only do you have your rent, but the utilities here are ridiculously high. So that was the first thing you heard. I think housing is the problem. And you've, and you've seen that. I mean, I would point folks to this fascinating UCSF study that came out a few weeks ago that found 90% of people experiencing homelessness in California were living in California, two-thirds of them born in California. So this is, it's not someone else's problem. Right. And, you know, one of the things that came up during the conversation earlier this week with these voters, and we should say it was a cross-section of voters uh, from all over San Jose and different backgrounds, different uh, kinds of professions, and one person was uh, was unemployed. Uh, you know, a lot of discussion about, you know, maybe it would be smarter rather than trying to solve homelessness to prevent it. You know, yeah. if you can if you can keep people and so many people are living on the edge, they're one disaster away from being evicted or not being able to pay the rent. And, you know, these folks really thought that through. Totally. And, and I think that prevention angle is interesting because we have seen there was a study out today about uh, this week about Santa Clara County and the uh, effects, the positive effects that homelessness prevention have had in terms of, you know, cash assistance or, you know, eviction protections, just a small amount, um, amount of money that may seem small that can prevent someone from falling into homelessness. Because another thing that, you know, this UCSF study pointed out was the time span people often have when they are find out they're evicted or find out they have to leave a family member's house is really short. It could yep. be 
one day, three days, and to have to totally plan your life uh, is really difficult. But from a political standpoint, there's something about prevention that it's not seen. Right. It's it, you're doing it. It's in, the problem that didn't happen. Right. Exactly. And, and I think that's why we get to these discussions about encampments um, that you, you have seen politicians to turn to as far as making a show of clearing encampments. Another thing I, I, you know, that came up pretty early was the solutions part of this. And to what extent these voters who may identify homelessness as a problem act, actually want to take part in a solution. And this often comes about in the context of would you like to see either temporary housing, affordable, permanent housing built in your neighborhood. And we heard a lot of the same things that you hear anecdotally. There's going to be, you know, crime. I'm worried about that. There's going to be, you know, graffiti, debris. I'm worried about that. My property values are going to go down. And we've seen this in, in San Jose. I've done some reporting about temporary housing there and how a lot of the concerns don't come to pass ultimately. Right. Um, but that was really, that was prevalent. Yeah, it was. And, you know, we saw here in San Francisco, you know, very liberal city by and large, when that navigation center was on on the books as a possible, uh, you know, place to be sited down in South Beach along the waterfront. A lot of criticism, huge numbers of people coming out to protest that. It's been up and running. And, you know, as, I, as we've reported uh, from our housing desk, uh, yeah, like you said, a lot of those problems have not come to pass. Most of them have not come to pass. Um, you know, and I was surprised some people in this group, one person in particular, even said, look, I've got two spare bedrooms in my house. You know, if we could mm. somehow, you know, sort of clear people ahead of time, I'd be willing to rent my place out. Now, you know, I don't know that if that would actually come to pass when push came to shove. But I think you did hear among these folks is some real compassion, you know, and yeah. wanting to solve the problem, not just punish folks who are experiencing uh, homelessness. Yeah. And I think here's where the turn happened is when it started to be phrased as, OK, you're upset about encampments in your neighborhood. What if, you know, these temporary housing or shelters that were built, if that was framed as an alternative to the encampments that you're seeing, when that idea was thrown out, when that message was thrown out, you heard a kind of change in the tone in the room. I'd say yes, because it's better than having tents everywhere. They have to keep them clean and, you know, there have to be rules, you know, with it, but... Yeah, if they move the, from the tents in the neighborhood to the temporary housing in the neighborhood, that, see, that helps your property value. And I think there's your messaging challenge for whether it's London Breed, Matt Mahan, Todd Gloria, all these mayors, is getting this housing built, it, framing it as, look, there are, there are people experiencing homelessness in our community. They can be living in encampments or they can be in temporary housing that kind of trade-off might be more palatable for voters. Yeah, and also people talked about motels, hotel rooms that are vacant, um, you know, just even tiny homes. I mean, it's interesting because a number of these folks said, well, I don't listen to the news, you know, but they certainly seemed informed. I mean, they, they knew some of the intricacies of some of the policies that Mayor Mahan has been talking about down there in San Jose uh, and, you know, very open to many things. Um, but of course, you know, one of the problems is just that it's so expensive to build affordable housing. Uh, and were you going to put like a sanctioned, uh, you know, uh, sort of protected RV encampment? RV encampment. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You know, you see uh, that kind of thing proposed and, you know, there's organized and not so organized uh, protests. And as I mentioned, the latest policy Mahan is putting forward that he announced on Thursday with a, a council member, a more progressive council member he often spars with, is this idea of an encampment ban. One rolled out uh, in San Diego as well. I know you've been following in San Francisco ongoing litigation uh, around the idea of clearing encampments. And this was raised, you know, in the in the conversation with voters. And I was surprised how many of them were pretty honest in viewing this as not a real true solution and more of a Band-Aid. 
I mean, should the homeless encampments be um, cleaned out, or sort of, like, what, what do you think? You, you, you all named a couple services. Cleaned up, not out. I mean, cleaned up, cleaned not up, out. not out. Yeah. I mean, are you, where are they going to go? They're just going to go somewhere else yeah. for the same thing. You know, so. Got to deal with the problem. Yeah, so that was interesting to hear. Voters kind of identify that as not really a a true solution. Yeah, and of course, you know, San Francisco spends a lot of money. The state is, you know, spending a lot of money, at least when the state was flush with a big budget surplus. And now we're coming into leaner times. You know, city budgets, county budgets, the state budget, uh, there's less money to go around. And so it's going to be interesting to see, like, some of these programs that did get some traction, for example, during the pandemic, uh, Project Home Key, that sort of thing. Uh, what happens to those? Yeah. And can they build on some of the successes that they've had? And how are voters either, you know, in, here in the Bay Area and elsewhere going to react? So what does this all mean for 2024? One thing I'm really interested in following is to what extent do concerns about homelessness, so something you'd identify in a poll as a top issue, actually translate into people becoming activated or feeling like this is my issue and I'm in a, how I vote in a mayoral race is going to be really hinge on how this issue improves or doesn't. And what we heard a lot of was people just feeling dispirited, people feeling feeling defeated. It wasn't that sense of I'm going to march in the streets about this. It's, you know, I think this uh, kind of sums up a lot of what we heard from voters. That's kind of what I, it was sad to me because it is expensive to live here and we don't know their circumstance, but there was kids that were clean and playing outside and, and that's how they live now, you know, and I wish there was a better solution, but it seems like it's just a big problem right now. So you hear that, you know, I'm sad about it. I'm, you know, it's, it, it seems like a big problem. Does that translate into pe- mayors getting voted out? That's, I think, what, what I'll be interested in watching. Yeah, exactly. And we're going to find that out uh, probably sooner uh, rather than, than later. Uh, as you said, at the top, we said three elections coming up for mayor in uh, San Jose, San Francisco, San Diego. San Diego. So we'll get some answers. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineer today is Jim Bennett. For more politics coverage from KQED, subscribe to our newsletter at kqed.org slash newsletters. I'm Guy Marzarati. And I'm Scott Schaefer. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time, everybody. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast.